join me in a spirit of prayer. Great source and end of all we cherish, we gather again as a class in this beautiful space, so grateful for the privilege we have known of studying and of learning, of filling our minds to their capacity with all the wisdom we could hope to glean. May we use our learning to be a blessing to all humanity. May we lift the lowly and empower the oppressed. May our humble gifts of any sort bring healing to the suffering, dignity to the despised, and mercy to the merciless. May we each play our part to the fullest in the building of the just and peaceful world you so desire for all people. May your peace be within us and among us all. Amen. Please be seated. Good afternoon. And welcome to Princeton University's 262nd baccalaureate service. As this number suggests, the baccalaureate service is among our very oldest traditions, as well as one of the most important. And though its character has changed over time, like that of Princeton as a whole, it remains an interval of calm reflection between the hoopla of reunions and the pomp and circumstance of commencement. There is much to ponder and much to be grateful for as we mark the end of another academic year and, for most of you, the end of your time at Princeton. You've completed one remarkable journey and are about to embark on another, which is why we call these commencement exercises and not termination exercises. I invite you to reflect on the qualities that have brought you to this point, on the perseverance, imagination, and curiosity that lie between the lines of your theses, and on the men and women who have nurtured these qualities in you. There are the professors and instructors who have helped you to view the world with different eyes, the coaches who inspired you to excel on the playing fields, and the conductors and directors who unleashed your artistic talents. The deans, advisors, chaplains, nurses, dining hall staff, and public safety officers who have extended a helping hand when you needed one most. And last but not least, there are the parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters, uncles and second cousins twice removed, a small army of relatives and friends who have provided critical support, both material and moral, along the way. At opening exercises four years ago, I predicted confidently that if you let her, Princeton would change your life. I hope you have proved me right and that you now join a long line of Princetonians who recall their time at Princeton as among the most important and influential of their lives. That was certainly our intention. On the other hand, I can say with absolute confidence 
that you have left your own mark on this great university, which is a livelier and more interesting place because you have passed this way. Thank you for all you have done to enrich the intellectual and social life of this university. A reading from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad from the Hindu tradition, first in Sanskrit, then in English. Om Asatoma Satkamaya Tamasoma Jotergamaya Mrityodma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 From falsehood lead us unto truth. From the darkness of ignorance lead us unto the light of knowledge. From death lead us unto immortality. Let peace pervade the entire universe, our community, and within ourselves. A reading from the Quran in Arabic and English. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wadduha wal-layli idha saja ma wadda'aka rabbuka wa ma qala wal-akhiratu khayrun laka min al-ula wal-sawfa yu'tika rabbuka fatarda alam yajidka yatiman fa'awa wabajadaka dalan fahada wabajadaka a'ilan fa'agna fa'amma al-yatima fala taqhar wa'amma al-sa'ila fala tanhar in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, by the morning hours and the night when it is still, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor is he displeased. Surely what comes next will be better than what has passed, and your Lord will provide for you until you are pleased. Did he not find you an orphan and give you shelter? Did he not find you wandering and guide you? Did he not find you poor and enrich you? Therefore, do not oppress the orphan or turn away the beggar. Proclaim the bounty of your Lord. Please read responsively with me from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth God's handiwork. Although they have no words or language, and their voices are not heard. In the deep has God set a pavilion for the sun, 
It comes forth like a bridegroom out of his chamber. It rejoices like a champion to run its course. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. A reading from the Epistle of James. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself. And gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion, in the sight of our God and Father, is this: to visit orphans and widows. In their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world.
The man I have the honor of welcoming today is viewed by many as a genuine American hero. To quote one student's verdict in The Prince, in an era when heroes are sadly in short supply. More than any other individual, General David H. Petraeus has given the country of Iraq the hope and fragile security it will need to establish for itself an enduring peace and future prosperity. And he did so not by the application of brute force, but by putting into practice his deep understanding about nation building through counterinsurgency. As head of the U.S. Central Command since last October, General Petraeus oversees the most volatile and strife-torn region of the world that encompasses 20 nations and stretches from Egypt in the west to Pakistan in the east, from the Arabian Peninsula to former Soviet Central Asia. Under two administrations, he has had to conduct two wars that lack a quick and easy resolution, well-defined combatants, and unanimous support. He has had to be as much a diplomat as a soldier, as much a student of other cultures as a representative of his own. As he told the BBC last year, this is not the sort of struggle where you take a hill, plant the flag, and go home to a victory parade. Whether he is dealing with Somali pirates, Iranian nuclear ambitions, or Islamic extremism on the porous border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, General Petraeus has had to chart a course that shuns simplistic definitions of victory and defeat in favor of incremental and nuanced progress, a course he perfected in Iraq, where he served with distinction for 48 long months, including 19 as commanding general. His tour as the commander of the 101st Airborne Division in Mosul in 2003 set the stage for what was to come later and is now the stuff of legend. His success in bringing relative calm to that region of Iraq by building schools, hospitals, and roads instead of a barricaded green zone led to his appointment in 2004 as the head of the Multinational Security Transition Command in charge of training Iraqi security forces. In 2007, he assumed command of the multinational force in Iraq and oversaw the surge strategy. Under his leadership, and thanks to the counterinsurgency strategy he championed, the level of violence in Iraq declined dramatically between 2007 and 2008, though he would be the first to say that much remains to be accomplished. Bringing relative stability to Iraq was a remarkable achievement, a task akin, and here again I use his own words, to repairing an aircraft while in flight and while being shot at. It required an elasticity of thought and action exemplified by the groundbreaking field manual on counterinsurgency operations that General Petraeus spearheaded between his tours of duty in Iraq, the first to be devoted to that topic in 20 years. 
as he and Marine Corps Lieutenant General James F. Amos noted in their foreword, soldiers and Marines are expected to be nation builders as well as warriors. This is heady stuff in a military more accustomed to fighting enemies than reconciling them, which may explain why General Petraeus was named the foremost public intellectual of 2008 by Prospect Magazine, a publication that opposed the war in Iraq. In the words of a senior editor, we know an original thinker when we see one, especially one who uses brain power to achieve change in the most difficult of circumstances. This comes as no surprise, of course, to us at Princeton, where General Petraeus, who graduated near the top of his class at West Point, earned an MPA and a PhD from the Woodrow Wilson School in 1985 and 1987. His 339-page dissertation, yes, you heard that right, 339 pages, explored the impact of the Vietnam War on the thinking of our nation's senior military officers, warning that history can mislead and obfuscate as well as guide and illuminate. General Petraeus has absorbed the lessons of history and those of his own remarkable 35-year career, responding to his nation's call with heart and mind and the conviction born of study and experience that the wars of this century will be very different from the conflicts of the last. Please join me in welcoming an outstanding scholar, soldier, and son of Princeton, David H. Petraeus. I'm glad I'm parachute qualified. <laughs> you should have issued me a bungee cord up here, Madam President. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for that very warm welcome. It is an extraordinary pleasure to be back at Princeton, an honor to help celebrate the class of 2009's graduation and every Princeton graduate's dream to share a few thoughts with you today. Upon receiving the invitation to speak here, in fact, I immediately asked my head-designated thinker how long I'd be allowed. Twenty-five minutes, he replied. Twenty-five minutes, I asked. How can I possibly tell them all that I know in twenty-five minutes? Well, sir, he answered, I'd su suggest you speak very slowly. Actually, this being Princeton, I know there's an English major out there who undoubtedly recognizes that my speechwriter borrowed that from George Bernard Shaw. But I want to assure you that my speechwriter, who was, of course, a fellow Princeton graduate, did put a footnote in the speech. <laughs> anyway, thanks for laughing. <laughs> I'm only as good as the material they give me. <laughs> President Tillman, thank you for your very kind words of introduction. They are more than generous. 
In fact, I have to confess, I wish my parents could have been here with us to hear them. My father would have enjoyed your gracious introduction, and my dear mother would have believed every word of it. (laughs) In turn, though, Madam President, thank you for your magnificent leadership here at this extraordinary institution. You have navigated the always tricky waters that swirl around institutions of higher learning with great skill and a deft, steady hand. The university has achieved a great deal on your watch, from innovations in science education and the creation of the Princeton Neuroscience Institute to the establishment of the Center for African American Studies. And I've been very pleased to see there's also been a timely, renewed emphasis on security studies at the great Woodrow Wilson School. So thank you for your exceptional leadership, your superb example, and your impressive vision. Our university has been very fortunate to have had you at its helm. Well, let me assure the class of 2009 that I'm keenly aware that I am all that stands between them and a good party. Actually, I understand that graduation celebrations have already been going on for some weeks now and that you've been celebrating with appropriate zeal and gusto. In fact, I heard there was very nearly trouble at a party attended by some Woodrow Wilson School seniors a few weeks ago in Manhattan. Now, I'm not sure how Princeton students had the time to be at a party in the city on a weeknight, as reportedly there still is a moderately demanding curriculum here, (laughs) but apparently they did. And the way I heard it, a Woodrow Wilson School student leaned over to a guy next to him and asked, want to hear a Harvard joke? Giving the Princeton student a hard look, the guy next to him replied, before you tell that joke, you should know something. I'm six foot five inches tall and weigh 230 pounds, and I go to Harvard. (laughs) The guy right here next to me is 6'2", weighs 225, and he goes to Harvard, too. And the guy next to him is 6'3", weighs 230, and he goes to Harvard as well. Now, you still want to tell that joke? No, I guess not, the Woodrow Wilson School student said. Not if I'm going to have to explain it three times. Of course, those Harvard students could still be smarting from being defeated by Princeton in basketball, lacrosse, and lightweight crew this year. They're just so sensitive. (laughs) When I told my wife that I was asked to deliver the baccalaureate address, she asked me, did you ever think back when you were a graduate student at Princeton that one day you'd be asked to give a commencement week speech? And I confessed that, of course, I hadn't. The baccalaureate address was the last thing on my mind when I was studying here. In fact, I'm reluctant to share what was on my mind as I struggled through Professor Bob Willig's advanced microeconomics class. In truth, when I started that class, I didn't know anything about supply and demand curves, what each represented, which went up, and which went down. And I am not making this up. What I did know is that I'd better figure it out pretty quickly. In any event, I can now say that all that squirming in the seats paid off And that's a tribute to Professor Willig and all the other professors, preceptors, and staffs who helped me become a proud graduate of this great university. So let me take a moment, if I could, to thank the faculty and staff, including a personal note of appreciation to Professor Emeritus Dick Ullman, my dissertation advisor while at Princeton, and a mentor ever since. 
As I know everyone here recognizes a key strength, perhaps the strength of Princeton, has always been its professors, devoted to scholarship, teaching, and mentoring, professors who go out of their way to support us during our time here, who often sacrifice their research and projects to help us with ours. They and all the staff here help make these hallowed halls so special, and I'd ask that you join me in thanking them for all they have done for so many of us over the years as well. Of course, along with the President, I also want to recognize the proud parents here today. Although the focus this week rightly is on the graduates, you, the parents of the class of 2009, deserve congratulations and thanks for helping your favorite student reach this day, too. And not just for being the National Bank of Mom and Dad, though I know your graduates appreciate that. More importantly, you've served as sources of energy and encouragement, as advisors and counselors, and as cheerleaders and admirers for your members of the graduating class. And for embodying all these qualities, we need to say thanks and congratulations to you today as well. Finally, of course, congratulations to the class of 2009. You've worked hard here at Princeton over the last four years, and you should feel rightly proud of all that you have accomplished to get to this day. But today, with your accomplishments in mind, I'd like to do more than just congratulate you. I want to challenge you. For at present, perhaps more than ever before, your communities, your nations, and our world need talented people like you to help tackle the pressing issues we face. So this afternoon, I want to challenge you to respond to this need and to make a commitment to something larger than self, to a greater good, to public service. As all here know, ours is a time with no shortage of pressing issues. As unemployment rises, as layoffs mount, as foreclosures stack up, and as federal, state, and local governments steal themselves for budget cuts, routine responses won't do. As the divide between rich and poor increases in many countries, as preventable diseases take millions of lives, and as basic human rights issue issues persist, the old ways have become stale. We need thoughtful, hardworking, talented people like you to help find and implement better solutions. We need you and those like you to choose careers in public service and to help solve the many problems before us. You might suspect that someone who wears a uniform would think of public service solely in terms of military service. And I'm very grateful for those who have committed to serve our country in uniform and who have chosen the path of military service. So let me say thank you to this Ivy League school for proudly supporting its ROTC program. And let me offer special congratulations to the soon-to-be commissioned members of the class of 2009. Alec Williams, Patrick Gallagher, Cameron Heggie, Brandon Riley, Jordan Blaschek, Clay Perrier, Rich Hegner, Katrina Johns, Wyatt Yankus, and Rhodes Scholar and Class of 2009 Salutatorian Stephen Hammer. Well done to each of you. By the way, Steve, I need your email address. We look forward to seeing you after Oxford. 
But while military service is important, it is only one of many forms of public service. Indeed, the ranks of Princeton civilians who served in Iraq were led by my great diplomatic wingman, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, a Woodrow Wilson School Fellow. And my first diplomatic partner when we were in Mosul in 2003 was an exceedingly talented Woodrow Wilson School graduate, Harold Mustafa, who spoke fluent Kurdish and Arabic. They and many other Princetonians and graduates of other great schools helped us turn around a faltering effort and give new hope in the land of the two rivers. But of course, public service need not entail putting oneself in harm's way in foreign countries. While the challenges are different, our own neighborhoods and communities also require creative solutions. Indeed, you can be a servant of the greater good with a private sector career as well. Our nation's history is full of examples of captains of industry and masters of the universe who made tremendous contributions of good citizenship. Such individuals represent the best of what John Milton, writing at the time of the English Civil War, called on good citizens to do, actively and forcefully participate in the shaping and the serving and the protecting of society. And in these respects, all graduates can serve and all can contribute. So whether you follow in the footsteps of diplomats, soldiers, foreign aid workers, healthcare professionals, educators, entrepreneurs, environmentalists, financiers, legal advocates, or political figures, there are countless ways to serve the public good and numerous issues that would benefit from your focus. But this afternoon, again, I'd like to challenge you to consider a career in public service. You all have big brains and amazing talents, or you wouldn't be sitting here today. By now, you also have a sense of your strengths and probably of your weaknesses. And this is the time to ask yourself what pressing needs can I help address? Now, as I issue this challenge, I'm well aware that it is indeed just that, a challenge. Public service is certainly not easy. The sacrifices that it entails are real and tough. As I'm sure you're all, all aware, it's possible that you'll work twice as hard to earn half as much. On top of that, the issues with which you will grapple in public service are difficult, complex, and seemingly intransigent. You'll likely face a lack of full resources to address those issues. The choices are never easy and the solutions are seldom perfect. In case all of this reminds you of Dante's warning, abandon hope all ye who enter here, let me make clear some of the powerful, albeit less tangible, rewards of public service. First, the biggest and most important reward of public service is the gratification that comes from being part of worthwhile endeavors. As 1985 Princeton graduate and First Lady Michelle Obama recently said of public service, there is nothing more fulfilling. It's an opportunity to put your faith into action in a way that regular jobs don't allow, a great way to demonstrate one's values and to give back to the community. Second, public service offers the chance to work hard at work worth doing, what Teddy Roosevelt called the best prize that life has to offer. Those of you graduating today already know of this benefit. No one, after all, can earn a Princeton degree without a great deal of hard work. You know personally the satisfaction that comes from achieving a worthwhile goal through hard work. And in public service, similarly, there is great reward to be found in grappling with the toughest of problems and in helping find solutions to them. Third, working in public service alongside others committed to serving a greater good fosters an uncommon level of camaraderie and sense of teamwork. 
There are few more rewarding experiences than linking arms with others and striving to achieve goals that are uniquely challenging and important. Nowhere is this exemplified better than on the battlefield, where troopers routinely put their lives on the line, above all for the troopers on their left and right. The relationships forged between men and women of the Brotherhood of the Close Fight often are the most intense imaginable. But all forms of public service required shared perseverance in the pursuit of a worthy cause and offer similar opportunities for camaraderie. Indeed, Woodrow Wilson noted that in public duty, there is a reward awaiting you which is superior to any other reward in the world. That is the affectionate remembrance of your fellow man, their honor, their affection. No man could wish for anything more or find anything higher than that to strive for. Lastly, public service provides an unparalleled opportunity for relatively young professionals to exercise and develop leadership skills. These skills, faculty, please cover your ears, cannot be taught in the classroom. They come only from experience, from doing, from applying what one learns in an academic environment in real life together with real people. It is by this way, in that setting, that the theoretical rational consumer of economics theory in Professor Willig's lectures becomes the often less than rational citizen of the real world. In fact, this thought reminds me of an event from the early stages of my career when I learned firsthand that undergraduate learning has to be complemented with on-the-ground experience. I was a brand-new second lieutenant out of my first field exercise with my platoon. We'd had a long day and didn't crawl into our sleeping bags until shortly before midnight. I'd only been asleep for an hour or so when my platoon sergeant, a wise old airborne veteran, elbowed me and woke me up. Sir, he said, look up and tell me what you see. And I replied, I see a million stars, platoon sergeant. And what does that tell you, sir, the platoon sergeant asked. I thought for a few moments and wanting to impress my platoon sergeant, gave an answer that I thought he would conclude to be truly profound and indicative of a keen intellect. Astronomically, I said, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are but small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it tells me that we're going to enjoy a beautiful day for training tomorrow. There was a long pause as my platoon sergeant considered my weighty answer. After a while, I finally asked him, what does it tell you, platoon sergeant? Well, sir, he replied, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. Well, regardless, regardless of the truth to that story, I can attest to the fact that I learned the most about leadership. <laughs> I learned the most about leadership from getting my hands dirty and my boots dusty. Marine Lieutenant Donovan Campbell learned similar lessons following his graduation from Princeton in 2001. He learned how to lead under fire when he deployed with his Marine platoon to help prevent Ramadi the capital of Iraq's difficult Anbar province, from falling into chaos. In his book, Joker One, a Marine Lieutenant's story of courage, leadership, and brotherhood, Campbell recalls how he developed leadership skills while in combat, learning to balance the often competing demands of accomplishing his unit's mission and taking care of his troopers at the same time. 
While again, the challenge in one, one faces in other forms of public service may not be the same as those on a battlefield, they are no less real and provide ample opportunity to lead. Indeed, young leaders in public service often find themselves entrusted with a level of responsibility that outpaces that of their contemporaries in the corporate world. And there are countless opportunities to develop hands-on leadership skills in a host of other public service endeavors. So again, I challenge each of you to pursue a path of public service, not only because the world needs you, but also because doing so will provide you with work worth doing, with unique opportunities for camaraderie, and with considerable scope to develop your leadership potential. Why me, you might be asking yourself. The answer, of course, is that the problems that beset our local, national, and international communities call for public servants who are our best and brightest, and because Princeton has uniquely prepared you for such service. Your education here has emphasized broad knowledge, critical thinking, and the ability to communicate your thoughts coherently. And the quality and character of such a background are particularly well-suited to public service, where the problems are complex and the resources thin. You may be surprised at how the knowledge and skills you've acquired here at Princeton, whether in the social sciences, the natural sciences, or the humanities, will serve you as you serve others. When I first went to Iraq in 2003, my soldiers and I were often greeted by Iraqis who would say to us, Thank you, American. We love democracy. What is it? I also remember being pulled aside after a provincial council meeting by an Iraqi business professor from Mosul University. This was right after I'd given a particularly impassioned and I thought persuasive explanation of the virtues of free market economics. You know, General, this Western-educated professor told me, the idea of free markets scares 95% of the people on this council. In truth, these reactions were not entirely unfamiliar to me, because as a graduate student here, I learned to work in an environment in which not everyone thinks the same way as those who come from a military background or from a variety of other backgrounds for that matter as well. I was, moreover, aware of the uneven spread around the world of what we know as liberal democratic thinking. So as we came to grips with the fact that the 101st Airborne Division was going to have to do nation building in northern Iraq in 2003, something for which we were not ideally prepared when we began the fight to Baghdad, I found myself thinking back to my political philosophy and government classes and, yes, even to Professor Willig's microeconomics course. Given my time here and my later stint as an assistant professor at West Point, I knew how to convey basic ideas about the concepts of market-based economics, the importance of majority rule and minority rights, the idea of basic freedoms, and the need for limits to avoid infringing on the rights of others. I could explain what I knew to the Iraqis we met, and I'd like to think we were all better for it. You are also uniquely prepared to accept the challenge of public service because as Princeton graduates, you've been imbued with a culture that values the ideals of service. And in making the decision to serve the public good, you would be guided by the principles you learned here. Recall that it was Princeton President Woodrow Wilson who coined Princeton's informal motto in the nation's service in a speech he delivered here in 1896. And since that time, our university has expanded the motto to in the nation's service in the service of all nations. 
These aren't just words. Countless Princetonians have upheld our university's motto. From the Princeton veterans whose service and sacrifice are memorialized by the bronze stars on the window sills of your dorm rooms, to Wendy Kopp, class of 1989, who wrote her senior thesis about novel ways to attract the best and brightest to teach, and then created Teach for America. To some of our nation's notable modern senators like Bill Frisk, class of 74, Bill Bradley, class of 65, Jack Danforth, class of 1958, Paul Sarbanes, class of 54, and Claiborne Pell, class of 40. Unfortunately, to be sure, some of those rival schools to the north have been producing more presidents of late. And I'd ask some of you here to vow to resolve to change that. But seriously, in rising to meet the challenges of public service, you can take confidence from the fact that each of you will be following in the footsteps of a long line of distinguished Princeton graduates. You can also take courage in the fact that you have the vitality and energy of youth on your side. Recall the words of traveler and adventurer Richard Halliburton, class of 1921, who in his wonderful book, A Royal Road to Romance, wrote movingly about the sense of possibility that he felt as a young man venturing out into the world. Realize your youth while you have it, he wrote. Don't squander the gold of your days. Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Be afraid of nothing. My mother made me read that book one summer when I was in high school. In truth, I'd much rather have been playing baseball or hanging out at the town pool. Heck, I'd rather have been mowing the lawn than reading that book on some days. But in the end, I appreciated her encouragement. For Halliburton told a wonderful tale of the adventures he had after graduating from Princeton as he sought to realize his youth while he had it. And his account of his experiences remains inspirational to this day. So today, in the spirit of Richard Halliburton, I encourage you to be afraid of nothing and to take advantage of your youth in choosing to help confront the challenges that lie before us. You stand at the threshold of a world of choices with a great education and a wealth of energy. Thousands of Princetonians before you have stood in the same position. Those we often praise most for their impact on our world have chosen the path of public service. They made the bold choice that the hard work of public service was worth it whatever it took. And as an old mentor, General Jack Galvin, used to say, the bold move is usually the right move. So be bold and fearless in channeling your energy into the undaunted pursuit of worthwhile work. Each of you entered this university four years ago with lofty hopes and high aspirations. You've achieved a great deal, and you'll soon receive one of America's most coveted diplomas. Whether you've spent these past four years in terrace or cottage, woody-woo or art history, you have a great deal to be proud of. And I offer heartfelt congratulations to all of you on your accomplishments. But as President Tillman noted, there's a reason a graduation ceremony is called a commencement and not a termination. It's a beginning, not an end. And now our world awaits the impact you will make after your long-awaited walk through Fitzrandolph Gate. Be bold in your commitment to serve. Be determined not to turd in seeking opportunities to work hard at work worth doing. Good luck, Godspeed, and go Tigers. Thank you very much.
Please rise. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. Blessed are you, O God, creator of life. You give us purpose and hope. Blessed are you, eternal truth. You give us minds to know you in the things you have made. Blessed are you, source of all mercy. You know our weakness and are always ready to forgive. Blessed are you, lover of souls. You bind in one community the living and the dead. Blessed are you, wellspring of all wisdom. Let us continue in prayer as we pray for Princeton. O eternal God, the source of life and life for all peoples, we pray that you would endow this university with your grace and wisdom. Give inspiration and understanding to those who teach and to those who learn. Grant vision to its trustees and administrators. To all who work here, to all who bear her name, give your guiding spirit of sacrificial courage and loving service. Amen. A blessing from the Jewish tradition. A man once approached Rabbi Hillel and demanded of him, teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Rabbi Hillel responded, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is just commentary. Go and study. And as the rabbis of the Mishnah teach us, I have learnt much from my masters and more from my teachers, but from my friends and peers, I have learnt most of all. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, shechecheyanu vekiyimanu vehigiyanu lizman hazeh. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has granted us life, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this occasion. Amen. A blessing from the Roman Catholic tradition. May Almighty God bless you in his mercy and make you always aware of his saving wisdom. May he strengthen your faith with proofs of his love so that you will persevere in good works. May he direct your steps to himself and show you how to walk in charity and in peace. May, all, may Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A blessing from the Protestant Christian tradition. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received, do. And the God of peace be with you. Amen. Wisdom from the Buddhist tradition. Dogen said each day consists of 6,400,099,180 moments. The actual number is not so important, but we should have a sense of how quickly time goes. All of us experience a gap between our minds and the reality of time. That's why we suffer. But actually, there is no gap. Even though your mind cannot keep up with the quick changes of time, you already exist in the domain of impermanence. As a human being, you inherently have a great capability that enables you to realize this truth and to experience your life with deep joy. Beloved class of 2009, as you leave your alma mater to face the great challenges of our day, you carry with you our solemn blessing and fervent hope. May you find wholeness through purposeful sacrifice in your nation's service and in the service of all nations. May you take comfort by alleviating the suffering of others. May you experience personal peace through the reconciliation of conflicting peoples. May you be generous with love so that you might know it. Create beauty so that you might recognize it. Be the source of joy so that you might be its celebrant. And wherever life may take you, May you flourish in God's presence. Amen.